This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. Up next from the Center for Social Innovation, imagine a world where all waste is biodegradable. Factories release oxygen into the atmosphere, supermarkets provide shoppers with edible shopping bags, and shoes release nutrients in the soil when you walk around. This is the world that architectural leader William McDonough is working to create. From the Conversations Network's Social Innovation Channel. Hi, this is Elena Connor Snibby. And I'm Eric Nee. We are your hosts on Social Innovation Conversations. Today, we're excited to bring you another presentation from the Center for Social Innovation in the Stanford Discussions series. The Center for Social Innovation is a growing community of leaders committed to a just, prosperous, and sustainable world. The Center offers leadership development programs and publishes our award-winning quarterly journal, the Stanford Social Innovation Review. Registered members of the Conversations Network receive a wide variety of benefits. For free membership or to help support our efforts through your donations, visit conversationsnetwork.org. Our audio content is delivered by Limelight Networks, taking the cost and complexity out of Internet distribution on the web at limelightnetworks.com. And now, here's our presentation from the Center for Social Innovation. I'm here as a designer tonight, and I'm here to talk about design as the first signal of human intention. And I see everyone as a designer, because we all wake up in the morning, and hopefully we're optimistic. And designers are inherently optimistic, because if we're not... What do we do tomorrow? And I think one of the problems I have today with present design methodology is that it's not inherently optimistic. If we look at the first industrial revolution as it's played out through environmental lenses and social lenses, we, and ask ourselves if design is a signal of intention, what would a retroactive design assignment of the first industrial revolution look like? Can you wake up tomorrow morning and actively participate, in fact, promulgate a system that measures prosperity by how much of your natural capital you can cut down, dig up, bury, burn, or otherwise destroy, that measures productivity by how few people are working, progress by your number of smokestacks, and if you're especially proud, put your names on them, toxic water polluters that are called factories, destroy biological and cultural diversity at every turn, seeking one-size-fits-all solutions globally, require thousands of regulations to keep you from killing each other too quickly, and while you're at it, produce a few things so highly toxic that they'll require thousands of generations to maintain constant vigilance while living in terror. As we look at this as a strategy, we realize that it's tragic. And that as we look at these tragedies, global warming, persistent toxification, endocrine disruption, heavy metal contamination, persistence, and so on, we realize that it's no longer acceptable for us to say this isn't part of our plan, because it's part of our de facto plan. It's the thing that's happening because we have no other plan. And that we realize as a culture, we've become strategically tragic. Now, we're at a business school. Any business that recognized that it was strategically tragic would realize it's time for a strategy of change. And this requires great humility because we don't know what to do. We've never done it before. And it's unfortunate that the word architecture and humility have not appeared in the same sentence <laughs> for a very long time. And if anybody has any trouble with the concept of design humility here, just respect, respect the fact that it took us 5,000 years to put wheels on our luggage. <laughs> We're actually not that smart. So it's time for some new strategies of change in order to give our children a sense that their elders have a strategy of hope to pass along. The three design questions that we're now asking as we design everything from molecules we work with about a trillion dollars worth of businesses. Some of our more uh, astonishing clients turn out to be people like BSF, the largest chemical company on the planet that's adopting our protocols for polymerization. Uh, BP mentioned, Ford Motor Company, Nike, 
a whole litany of companies that you'd never expect. A whole group of people, people ask me, you know, how can you work with them? And my answer has to be, well, who am I supposed to be working with? The questions we're asking are, how do we love all of the children of all species for all time? It's the first one. And it's not just our children, and it's not just our species, and it's not just now. The second is, when do we once again become indigenous people? When do we become native to this place? How many people in this room consider themselves indigenous people? What does it mean to be native to a place? I don't know if you saw the Wall Street Journal front page yesterday, but they convened a group of people to come to Yucca Mountain to discuss how to mark a place so that a sign would be left that would last until 12,003, saying, beware. Ten years ago, there was a meeting at the Hanford nuclear plant in Washington, where we make our plutonium for our bombs and missiles, the same assignment. They had brought scientists together and semiologists to discuss how to mark the ground where we've stored the plutonium so that even an extraterrestrial 5,000 years from now wouldn't dare to dig. How's that for a design assignment? And what was interesting is the Yakima people who are native to that place were there for some other meetings, and they bumped into the scientists during the breakouts, found out what they were doing, and started laughing. And they said, you know, you really don't need to worry about this. We'll tell them where it is. They weren't leaving. What happens when we're not leaving? What happens when we imagine that we would be here 5,000 years from now to tell our stories? Imagine cultures that last for tens of thousands of years that can communicate constantly and richly. And I think for the, for the issue of a business school, I think the question has, the next question has to be a question that was asked of us by a very special advisor to us, Robert Levinson, who lives nearby here. And he, he came out with the most astonishing statement as we were working on something together. He said, I think the question of capitalism has to shift, and I think you're onto something, because it appears that you have developed a carrot that's big enough to use as a stick. And that the question has shifted. It is no longer. Do I simply ask, how much can I get for how little I give? But instead, how much can I give for all that I get? And as we reverse this question of capitalism, we realize that even the discussions going on today in the environmental world around business, the famous triple bottom line, how many of you have heard of the triple bottom line? The idea that we would record not just our economic metrics on a current currency basis, but also social and ecological criteria is a very important strategy. But what I'd like to show today and talk about is a strategy that Michael Braungart and I are developing called the triple top line, because what we found is triple bottom line, in a sense, in the environment, environmental sense, becomes bottom feeding. Because we know how to measure our economic bottom line. We've been doing that on a current basis for a while. But what you'll see is that every corporate responsibility report that talks about the triple bottom line, when it reports on society, it says, well, we've been good for society, we've produced a daycare center, and so on. But when it comes to the environment, what it'll say is, we reduced our toxic emissions this year by 5%. We reduced our contributions to global warming. We reduced our pollution, and so on. It's all about how they're being less bad. And isn't it ironic that a double negative is a positive? Is being less bad being good? Or is it simply being bad just less so? And perhaps we need a new design. Because if this is all we can report out to our children, that mommy and daddy were less bad last year, we have to wonder if they see that as a strategy of hope. As was mentioned, I was the dean at the University of Virginia, and as such, I had the great privilege for five years of living in a house designed by Thomas Jefferson. And when you live in a house designed by Thomas Jefferson, it's sort of like Elvis. <laughs> you know, he's always there. <laughs> it's hard to resist thinking about Jefferson, because every morning you wake up and walk out onto this great lawn, and you think, this is design. This is intention, first public university country, and you start to realize what an astonishing 
designer he was. And as you look at his tombstone, his last design, you'll notice that on it he only recorded the things he designed. It says Thomas Jefferson, author of the Declaration of American Independence, the Statute of Virginia for Religious Freedom, which became the Bill of Rights, and father of the University of Virginia. That's it. Anything missing? <laughs> Can you imagine being president of the United States twice? And it's not important enough to put on your tombstone. Well, that's interesting, because what we realize is he's only recorded his designs, his legacies, none of his activities, you see. He's recording legacy, not activity. You're in business school. The Greeks had a whole other concept of economy. Economy to them meant the health of your household. If you took a farm that was dry and dead and you brought it back to life, you left your children with a vital place, that was economy, the health of your household. What, what we call economy, they call crematistics. Day-to-day -day exchange, currency, I'll give you this, you give me that. Economy meant the accrual of health and fecundity, not simple exchange. And so as Jefferson looks at his legacies and leaves them, his activities not being recorded, we realize that today we only record activity, not legacy. When a business like Exxon starts to reflect on the Exxon Valdez, we realize that as the Exxon Valdez goes down, the GDP measurements of Alaska go up because there are so many people trying to clean it up. We record activity, not legacy. For every case of leukemia we create, we create nine jobs in this country. 25% of our population is engaged in health care. Is leukemia our job creation program? So perhaps we need some new design. We need to think about a triple top line strategy where we can feed society with spectacular strategies. We can feed the environment with wonderful relationships and while we attend to our day-to-day -day exchange. Well, Jefferson was certainly a strategist, if nothing else. And if we look at his designs and study what they, what they were about as design assignments, what is the design assignment of the Declaration of Independence? Could you create a document calling for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, free from remote tyranny? Now, in his case, remote tyranny was someone somewhere else. It was place. But today, he'd be calling, I think, for declarations, plural, of interdependence. The issues would be the same, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, but now free from intergenerational remote tyranny, one generation tyrannizing another. We know he understood this. In 1789, he wrote a letter to Madison when he was designing the federal government. And in it, he said, they were trying to determine the term of a federal bond. What should the federal borrowing power be? And what should its time limit be? And his conclusion was that it should be one generation. And his logic was this. He said, the earth belongs to the living. No man may by natural right oblige the lands he owns or occupies to debts greater than those that may be paid during his own lifetime. Because if he could, then the world would belong to the dead and not to the living. Now, if we look at his second design, the Bill of Rights, we have to ask the question, at what point in the Bill of Rights did we give the individual or company or community the right to pollute a river and destroy our children's brains with neurotoxins? When did we do that? As Rachel Carson pointed out in her preface to Silent Spring in 1962, the Founding Fathers would never have given this right to anyone because they never would have thought we would do such a thing. And so what we realize is Jane Jacobs has, the urban theorist, the humans have evolved two fundamental syndromes of activity, what she calls the guardian and commerce. And they're fundamentally different. The guardian is, is the state. It's very slow. It's very serious. It reserves the right to kill. Soldiers are mobilizing. It reserves the right to be duplicitous. The CIA is legal. And it shuns commerce. Right? That's why we worry about capital campaign finance reform. What they do in the Lincoln bedroom over coffee. Commerce, on the other hand, is very quick. It's very efficient. very effective. And it's fundamentally honest. Because we can't do business with each other if we're not honest. And she points out that if you get the two together, you get what she calls a monstrous hybrid. Like the mafia, for example, you know, does business and reserves the right to kill. It's, <laughs> it's a problem. But the other monstrous hybrids that we can see are when the guardian gets into commerce or car commerce gets into the guardian. When commerce gets into the guardian, it corrupts it. 
when the Guardian gets into commerce, say with a regulation, it slows it down. We see regulations as signals of design failure. It's the state stepping into commerce saying, wait a minute, we never gave you the right to kill. We'll tell you at what rate you can dispense death. Think about it. What do we say when somebody's beating a regulation and not being caught or punished? What do we say? What does our language say? We just say it, and we say it all the time. What do we say? We say they're getting away with murder. That's what we say. I've been accused of not liking regulations. That's not true. I see regulations as signals of design failure. I see it as the state stepping in and saying, excuse me, we never gave you the right to kill. Perhaps it's time for a new design. This idea of intergenerational remote tyranny is fundamental to Jefferson. It's interesting that you know the native peoples talk about making decisions on behalf of your seventh generation. It's interesting to note that we are Thomas Jefferson's seventh generation. He designed the Declaration of Independence for us. And the question is not whether we dominate the planet. That's clear. Global warming. Every, you know, everybody knows that 99.9% .9 of the large mammals on the planet are under human management at this point. So that's not a question. So then, oh, perhaps we're supposed to be better stewards of the environment. Well, isn't dominion implicit in stewardship? Because how could you be stewards of something you couldn't dominate? And on the other hand, isn't stewardship implicit in dominion? Because how could you dominate you know, something that was dead? So. The real question, I think, is the native question again. It's when do we find ourselves in kinship with the natural world? When do we find ourselves as part of it? The native peoples would say what we call our natural resources. They call their relatives. Now, if we're going to talk about this idea of connecting to the natural world, we have to understand what is nature. And if we're going to talk about rights, we have to talk about this idea of you know, no man made by natural right. What about this idea of natural rights? Humans are imbued with natural rights. I mean, when we think about it, seven generations ago, most of the people in this room could call that could understand that their ancestors were probably in feudal culture. An astonishing thing. And if we look at the history of rights, we realize that if, as Jefferson did, if we look to Anglo-Saxon texts, we find the rights of noble males with Magna Carta in 1215. If we look at the Declaration of Independence, 1776, we find this idea of Rights for what? Right? White, landowning, males, Protestant, of a certain age, 6% of the population. Then we see emancipation, suffrage, welcome aboard, ladies, 1922. Native Americans get the vote, 23. Civil Rights Acts of the 60s. And then in 1973, under Nixon, the first time something other than a human being is given the right to even exist, the Endangered Species Act. And today, the discussion has matured to endangered ecosystems. And so we start to realize that perhaps nature itself has rights. So it's not just natural rights of humans, but perhaps the rights of nature need to be considered. And as we look at that, then, what is nature? Well, Emerson in 1838, on the cusp of the first Industrial Revolution, did an essay for Harvard, one of the Norton lectures, entitled Nature. And in it, he asked this fundamental question. He said, if human beings are natural, are therefore all things made by human beings part of nature? Is this natural? And his conclusion was that nature is all those things that are immutable, what he called the unchangeable essences, the things that humans couldn't affect. And his, his examples were the oceans, the mountains, and the leaves. Well, I think we can affect the oceans, the mountains, and the leaves. You have sudden oak death surrounding you. You came from Germany on a rhododendron. Jacques Cousteau has shown us that we can affect the oceans. We can take down mountains. And so I think this idea that nature is all these things that are immutable is perhaps needs to be questioned. And the concept of the way, remember that, has gone away. You used to be able to throw things away. Where's away? Away went away. So the next question then would be, well, what is design? In 1831, Emerson went to Europe on a sailboat and returned to a steamship. If we abstract this for effect as designs, he went over on a solar-powered recyclable craft 
operated by craftspeople practicing ancient arts in the open air, and returned in a steel rust bucket putting smoke into the sky, oil on the water, operated by, crafts, or operated by people working in the dark, shoveling fossil fuels into the mouths of boilers. Now the amazing thing is that we're still designing steamships. We're in one right now. The sun could be shining gloriously out there and we'd be in here producing nuclear isotopes and global warming so we can sit here and talk about nuclear isotopes and global warming. We're still designing steamships. We need a new design. That's what we call a boat for Thoreau, which is ironic since he didn't travel much. And when asked why not by the fathers of Concord, he said, what do you mean? I have traveled widely in Concord. <laughs> and what we understand is that all sustainability is local, like politics. Well, if we're going to talk about designing ships and we're going to talk about changing things, we need leaders, and we can talk about leadership. So the question would be, who is the leader on a ship crossing the ocean? has been pointed out, is it the captain, the navigator, the helmsman? I mean, who is it? Well, perhaps it's the designer of the ship, because you can be the best captain in the world, but if the ship isn't seaworthy, you're going down. We need a new design. Sorry. What was that? Oh, light. That needs a new design. <laughs> Let me tell you about my background, uh, give you a sense of where this comes from. I was born in Tokyo. I grew up in Hong Kong. And as a child, we had 6 million people on 40 square miles. And <clears throat> the relationship to the landscape was very different. The city uh, was quite intense, as you can imagine. And the countryside was also quite intense. Every square inch mattered. The Chinese developed a whole cuisine around larvae that you ate because you ate your protein before it sprouted wings and flew away. So everything mattered. Everything was valuable. During the dry season, we had four hours of water every fourth day. People died of cholera on our doorstep, dysentery, ringworm, yellow fever, scarlet fever, diphtheria, and so on. We thought this was ordinary life. During the summers, I spent, I spent time with my grandparents in the Olympic Peninsula of Washington State, where my grandfather had been a lumberjack in the Olympic forests. A lot of karma to work off here. And, um, had built, had built a log cabin, lived with my grandmother, raised oysters, and um, traded flowers for raspberries with the neighbors, put things away for the winter, composted, saved rubber bands and aluminum foil, and I thought that was ordinary life. And then as, a, as I went off to um, uh, high school in Westport, Connecticut, where 16-year-olds had Porsches, I was very much hoping that would be ordinary life. You can imagine. But my dad was a depression child, so he figured we all had to pair our way through college, which was doubly difficult since he had become the president of Seagram International, so he made too much money for us to get federal loans. But I went off to Dartmouth after that and, and then worked for King Hussein, helping to settle the Bedouins in the Jordan Valley because the political borders had been shut. And I started to imagine what it would be like for human habitations to become native to place. Can you imagine where the wind comes from in this picture? This is Hyderabad, Pakistan. And then I went, after Dartmouth, I went to Yale to, to study modern architecture. And when I got there, I realized what I was there to study was the artificial environment. Because with the coming of the Victorian era and the large sheet of glass and fossil fuels, in this case coal, all of a sudden humans could create these artificial environments and bring back these lilies uh, from halfway around the world and create artificial environments that were quite astonishing as modern architecture. Here's the Crystal Palace by Paxton, built in nine months from the day commissioned by the Duke of Devonshire, a whole new technology, born almost full flower. But we ended up with this idea that we could create artificial climates here, the Climatron in St. Louis. And even, and there's that lily again, and then even Bucky Fuller, so sensitive to material energy flow, would say that, well, if the air quality in Midtown got too bad, well, we could air condition it. He's Vandero in the 20s proposing the glass skyscraper here in Berlin. And this might have worked in Berlin, but we built it in Houston. <laughs> and the windows don't open. And the materials inside appear never to have been designed for indoor use. 
perhaps this is the diagram of a gas chamber. And where's the sun? Which way is south? I gave the opening address to the largest gathering of architects in history in McCormick Place, 1993, 10,000 architects. And I looked out at the audience and I said, how many people in this room know how to find true south? I got four hands. How many people in this room know how to find true south? And you realize that modern architecture arrives with this incredible sense of, of here, a building highly ventilated and so on, by Le Corbusier, who coined the term, a house is a machine for living in. Well, does that mean that a church is a machine for praying in? Is an office a machine for working in? Is this a room for talking in? A machine? And here, the style of his Unité d'Habitation in Marseille, known affectionately, in the architectural community as brutalism. And what you realize is that even though our consciousness changed in 1969 because all of a sudden a way went away, that our awareness of the world expanded through the use of science here watching hurricanes forming, and that even today we can watch incredible flows, ozone, temperature, water currents, and so on from space but none of the architects know where the sun is. We're all wandering down around on the ground without any sense of how this all works. And that as we saw in the 70s, we're up against some limits now that might affect our political situation. They might affect our economy. And it appears that the only design protocol that is in play anymore, and in the first industrial revolution, and the only principle at work is, if brute force isn't working, you're not using enough of it. Here, we've designed a whole city that we can take anywhere in the world, carries its own air force. If brute force isn't working, you're not using enough of it. So the question of how we're going to relate to the world, I think, is a fundamental one for our culture to engage. And perhaps there are new ways for us to start to think about the making of things. We first put forward some of these ideas when we were commissioned by the city of Hanover in the, in the year 1991 to write the design guidelines for the year 2000 World's Fair in Hanover. They were issued at the Earth Summit in 1992. And they're design principles that basically say, first, insist on the rights of humanity and nature to coexist. This doesn't say, please hope that someone else will do it for you. There's fierceness here, insist. Secondly, recognize interdependence. It's before I met Mr. Jefferson, but there it is. And expand design considerations to recognize even distant effects. This might be in space, it might be in time. The piece of wood that we saw today, this teak in the elevator, came from somewhere. Something happened there. We need to know that. As we look at the implications of the advent of solar energy on our facilities and our future solar future, we recognize that we can do, as Bucky Fuller said, anticipatory design science and chart the fact that the cost of present fuel of energy production looks like this, the cost of renewables and the re related strategies looks like this, and that at some point they're about to cross in many places they have already. Go to Germany, solar power is cost effective. Go to San Diego, they've already crossed. You're not fiduciary if you don't do it. And that businesses can simply say, we're going solar, and they can start to track these fundamental equations all over the world and identify as soon as those lines cross, they're in business. Because if they're not, they're not in business. Isn't that interesting? So distant effects might be time as well as space. Respect the relationships between spirit and matter. The Germans wanted this one removed. They said it was too fuzzy. <laughs> we said, well, if you go around the world and give these to indigenous peoples to review, they come back and say there's only one principle. It is this one. And the rest of them flow from here. It was number eight at the time. He said, let's, so let's move it up. Let's make it five. They said, no, you don't understand. We have to get rid of it. And we said, no, let's make it number three. Do you see where we're going? So it's number three. Um, accept responsibilities for the consequences of design. This is a bill of responsibilities to make safe things, not a bill of rights to pollute and destroy. Create safe objects of long-term value. Don't burden future generations with long-term liabilities, of course. Eliminate the concept of waste. I think this is the one that sort of rattled the most cages. Because of the Earth Summit, the whole proposal of the World Business Council 
was eco-efficiency, saying let's reduce, avoid, minimize waste. This doesn't say reduce, avoid, minimize. It doesn't say please recycle. It says eliminate the entire concept of waste. And remember, this is before we start seeing books like Factor 4, you know, Factor 4 reduction of materials and energy, Factor 10, so on and so forth. This is eliminate the entire concept of waste. Rely on natural energy flows. Nature doesn't mortgage the future. It doesn't borrow from the past. It works from current solar income. We'll get to this in a minute. But imagine that Einstein's equation was actually a small poem. Because as a designer, I'm obviously not a scientist. Um, I look at these things. I took, when I took physics at Dartmouth, it was, it was subtitled Physics for Poets. So it seemed to me that, that the, the idea of E equals mc squared is phenomenally elegant when you start to think of E as energy and the sun and physics. M is the earth and mass and chemistry. And you put the two together at C squared, and what do you get? Biology. The thing that science is still working on explaining. This idea of the magic of life itself that appears from this inert mass connected to the sun's energy, and all of a sudden, growth is good. Isn't that it? When's the last time you heard that? Growth is good. A tree that grows is good. A child that grows is good. Fecundity is part of the natural world. And what we recognize is that we have solar income. We will solve the income energy problem. Because energy problem because we have income. If you went home tonight and the bank called and said you had 5,000 times the income you need to operate, you'd figure out your home economics. We have energy income. We can work with that. What we don't have is mass income, except for occasional meteorite. So if we look at the mass, what we recognize is that if we toxify the mass, by persistently distributing the chromium all over the planet, for example, in little pockets. Or we destroy the quality of the soils, and we deplete them. Or we cover them over with asphalt, which in our lexicon is two words assigning blame. Then we recognize we, re we, we remove the fecundity of the Earth's surface for this interaction of life-giving force. And this is magical. I mean, science really is going to have a tough time explaining to me tonight how the single photosynthetic cell will yield you know, sex and the next thing you know, sentient creatures with spiritual consciousness sitting here to talk about the environment. So you know, it's an astonishing thing. But let's remember that it is solar powered and then get back to the molecules again. Understand the limitations of design. Be humble. Treat nature as a model and mentor. Millions of years of R&D have gone into this. You know, um, It's not an inconvenience to be evaded or controlled. See constant improvement by the sharing of knowledge. Well, here we are. Now, I'd just like to talk about some of the good news. Um, this is a great statement by Gandhi, I think. First, they ignore you. In 1984, when Environmental Defense hired us to design their headquarters, we called the manufacturers and said, what's in your products? And they said, it's proprietary. It's legal. Go away. So we're still at it. Then they ridicule you, like, oh, what a silly question by VC. Why are you worried about this? And then they attack you. Uh, we're in that phase now. Um, <coughs> onward. So our idea of victory would be a world that is powered by renewable energy. And all the materials are either going back to soil safely or back to industry forever. And there's, there's no persistent toxification. And there's complete nutrition cycles. And that's what's in the book, Cradle to Cradle, which is not made from paper. The first chapter is entitled, This Book is Not a Tree. It's a polymer. Because if you look at the history of paper from a, from a design perspective, 5,000 years from now, an Egyptian wandering down the Nile or some Chinese person wandering along the Yangtze looks at a bulrush or a papyrus and says, oh, that's very interesting. I could pick this, smash it, and write on it, which is an astonishing revelation of polymer chemistry when you think about it. But the fact is, here we are 5,000 years later, and we have people wandering around British Columbia looking up at 200-foot-tall spruce trees saying, I could smash this and write on it. <laughs> what have we learned in 5,000 years? As Margaret Atwood says, the Canadian writer, we write our history on the skin of fish with the blood of bears. And perhaps it's time for a whole new strategy for the polymerization and flow of white surfaces. There are so many polymers in the world, we decided to make our book the first polymer book. You can read it in the bathtub. <laughs> now, we're not talking here about being less bad. We're talking about a new strategy. Because if you look at 
at the whole idea of typical environmentalism as it relates to business and and design, everybody says they wake up in the morning and they say, oh, I'm 100% bad, I'll try and feel better by being less bad, and my goal is zero. How exciting is that? How many of you wake up and go, my goal is zero? I mean, who cares? I mean, it's not that exciting, really. Doesn't seem to me, anyway. I mean, how many people are, are excited about maintenance? Let's go maintain. You know, even sustainability, for that matter. I won this award at the White House from the President's, the nation's highest environmental award. And since I was the only individual to get it, the press came running up and went, Mr. Sustainable, what does it all mean? I felt just like Mr. Natural, remember that? And I said to the reporter, you know, I'm not that interested in sustainability, really. What? And I said, yeah, because, like, are you married? What's your relationship to your wife? If you say sustainable, I'll say I'm sorry. <laughs> just not that interesting, really. So if sustainability is just maintenance, hey, who cares? That's not interesting. We're going to maintain this. So what we're looking for is a sustaining agenda, the idea that the world gets better because we're here. So let's imagine what 100% good looks like and then start to measure our progress towards that. And this brings us to the triple top line. So instead of saying, oh, I reduced my toxic emissions this year by 10%, what if I said I became 1% solar powered this year? What if I measure my top line creativity? What if I generate fecundity in society and fecundity in environment and fecundity in economy? So I deliver revenue. I mean, you're in business school. I'm an architect. I don't understand something. How can you talk about being less bad as being good from an economic perspective, any kind of evaluative perspective? Isn't the job of business to produce revenue? I mean, managing to the bottom line is the job of a manager. If all you can talk about is the bottom line, it's manager's job. Peter Drucker wrote a book called The Effective Executive, 1984. Page one, he says, it's a manager's job to be efficient, to do something right. It's an executive's job to be effective and do the right thing. Because what if you're doing the wrong thing right? See, does efficiency have any value? Is it a good? in a philosophical sense? Okay. What if you're a Nazi? An efficient Nazi is worse than an inefficient Nazi. So is efficiency good? Not if you're a Nazi. So do I care about efficiency? Only if it's doing the right thing, which is effectiveness. So we've called our, our protocol eco-effectiveness instead of eco-efficiency. And the idea is to be positive, be creative, and generate to the top line, generate revenue, generate more ecological wealth. I mean, every environmentalist out there is now talking about the new buzzword is ecological footprint. And every one of these things says we have to reduce our ecological footprint of humans. It's like, give it up. We're already all over the planet. You know, what we have to do is increase the ecological footprint of humans, except instead of leaving behind asphalt, we should be leaving behind wetlands. You'll see a building for Ford Motor Company million-square-foot facility with the largest green roof in the world. Being done saving Ford money. Here it is. This is the Rouge for Ford Motor Company. We're redoing this pro project. It's a $2 billion undertaking. This was Henry Ford's uh, vertically integrated industrial facility. Iron ore and coal come in here. Steel mills, stamping mills, rolling plants, rubber plants, glass factories, paint shops, finished cars out the other end. The joke in Dearborn, Michigan, is that this is a color photograph. <laughs> <laughs> so here's what we're up to. $13 million extra, we're putting this green roof on the assembly plant that we're building. The paving is all porous and absorbs water, puts it through filters. It then goes to constructed wetlands and then back through native habitats on its way to the River Rouge three days later. $13 million additional cost. These are our tools. These are the industrial systems that we're integrating. And here's what happened on an economic bottom line perspective. First cost. Turned out Ford, which has real accountants, uh, had, posted, had posted a contingent liability on their books of $48 million to meet the Clean Water Act in three years. The system had already been designed. Four foot concrete pipes, three chemical treatment plants, 
and lots of UAW workers standing around at 55 bucks an hour praying it doesn't rain. <laughs> now, is that how you wish to deploy $48 million worth of shareholder asset? And bury it so it's invisible and have people standing around twiddling their thumbs waiting for it to rain next to piles of chemicals. Instead, for $13 million, we got the green roof, we got the porous paving, we got the constructed wetlands, and that whole system disappeared, and they got the landscape for free. Ford saved $35 million day one. It took the board a minute and a half to approve this project. But you've got to understand, this is very different, because you see efficiency people were there telling Ford, you could do the stormwater more efficiently. We could use better pumps and a few less chemicals, and maybe we could make the pipes a little smaller. See, it's not doing the old, the wrong thing more efficiently. We're trying to figure out what is the right thing to do. Well, what is the right thing to do? What if we looked up in the sky at the birds flying overhead and said, hello there, we're here, it's your people, they're back. And start to imagine your ecological footprint. Imagine human productivity where we start to restore the landscape instead of destroy it with every move. We invite back all the species that evolved from this place. What is a high-tech building? How many buildings you know made oxygen lately? Well, fortunately, we've been able to do products, too. We announced on the end of January uh, the new car, the Model U. Ford is now calling this the Model T of the next century. It's the first cradle-to-cradle -cradle car. Let me show you how this works. Our design principles, waste equals food. We eliminate the concept of waste, use current solar income, and celebrate diversity. This issue of diversity and celebration of diversity is fundamental. As we talk about the globalization issues, and I've been at Davos to talk about this, because this issue of globalization is a fundamental one. And what we recognize in our protocols is that with biological systems and technical systems, with biology, we want diversity. We celebrate diversity. More people, more species, more hope. More, 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 more. It's fecund. Life is a fecund thing. Remember what they what what... Charles de Gaulle said when they asked him what it was like being president of France. Remember that? He said, what do you think it's tr like trying to lead a country with 400 kinds of cheese? <laughs> but we want 400 kinds of cheese, right? We don't want the whole world to just have to eat three and a half inches square, you know, of soft orange PVC and call it cheese. So... What we recognize is we want diversity in biology. We want different kinds of wine. We want different kinds of food. We want different kinds of culture. We want different kinds of art. We want different kinds of people. And this is a fundamental thing, and it's a respectful question. You know, the Dalai Lama was at a conference 15 years ago in Chicago on world peace, and they had a three-day conference. People from all over the world, very important. 100,000 people out there on the Navy pier out in front of Chicago. And, and they had three days of debate about what it would take to get world peace. And he was the last speaker, and he stood up at the podium. And have you ever seen the Dalai Lama angry? Can you imagine this? Right? Mr. Happiness himself. Okay? He's up on stage. He hits the podium with both fists like this so that the whole of Chicago can hear it. Bang! And he says, I've been here for three days listening to all of you talk about how world peace will be achieved when we all realize, and you all agree on this, when we all realize that we're all the same and that we all need the same things, and we're all really the same people, and that we have to respect each other and treat each other the same and share everything and be the same. He said, I could not disagree more. He says, the day we will have world peace is the day that we understand that we are all different and that we respect that and that we celebrate each one of us as something special. And so this idea of celebrating diversity is really critical in biological systems. But what concerns us, especially in the context of globalization, is that we don't want 400 kinds of French polymer. Because in technical nutrition, we will never be able to close the cycles if the materials are all dispersed through strange amalgams of monstrous hybrids that can never go into coherent flows. And so we go to our business clients, and we say, our criteria are the same as normal business. Cost, performance, aesthetics. Can I afford it? Does it work? Do I like it? Fair enough. We, that's, those are the questions we've been asking. Obviously, as architects and architecture students, we ask the opposite order. We start with aesthetics and move to performance and cost, but it's still the same, <laughs> still the same three criteria. And so we've added to that, is it ecologically intelligent? 
Is it just? And is it fun? I was with Michael Dell in his office talking about the future computers based on these protocols. And all of a sudden, I realized that ecological intelligence is life. Justice is liberty. And fun? The pursuit of happiness. Isn't that interesting? Thomas Jefferson gets an MBA. And Dell goes, you know, that's really interesting. You and Jefferson are interesting thinkers, but you both forgot one of the most important things. I said, really? What is it? Bandwidth. <laughs> <laughs> Jefferson was very high bandwidth. He wrote 33,000 letters and had copies of every one. Anyway, if everything, if waste equals food, everything's nutrition. If everything's nutrition, it belongs in the metabolism. Well, what are the metabolisms of the world? Well, Dr. Browngart and I see two fundamental metabolisms, the biological one and the technical one. And we see products in the biological system as biological nutrition. To, we need to rebuild our soils healthfully and safely, and technical nutrition. If I look at this computer, I call it a technical nutrient. It's what we also call a product of service. And so we developed this concept in, in the late 80s. The idea is that what you really want of this is the service, not necessarily the toxic molecules. If I hid a computer behind the, uh, or television set behind this podium, and I said, I have an astonishing object, provides amazing service. But before I tell you what it does, let me tell you what it is, and you tell me if you want this in your house. It's 4,360 chemicals, 18 grams of highly toxic mercury, has an explosive glass tube, and we think you ought to put it at eye level with children and encourage them to play with it. <laughs> Do you want this in your house? Why are we selling people hazardous waste? Wouldn't it be marvelous if you could de-shop these things? See, the design for durability issue makes a lot of sense in architecture, where we expect these buildings and hope that they will last a long time and perhaps be flexible in their utility. But if I said to you, I just got this new computer and it's going to last me 25 years, you would say, this guy is stupid. <laughs> so what I really want is the service of this. And when I finish with this, I'd love to be able to send it back to Dell and say, thank you so much for the service. I'd like a new one, please, you see. And so the cycles start to close and waste becomes food. Now, we've developed this with polymerization. We're developing it in different industries. The carpet industry has taken this up with great vigor. Uh, in fact, Shaw Carpets, uh, the largest carpet company in the world, is, will be announcing their cradle-to-cradle carpet this spring, a carpet that's made from nylon six and, 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 and a polyolefin back to come apart. Carpet can be carpet again infinitely. It is now done. And so as we saw, this idea of efficiency is a Zeno's paradox, because being less bad is not being good. And in the end, slowing things down and going towards zero would beg the question, if you're here in San Francisco and you want to go north to Canada or south to Mexico, if you find yourself going 100 miles an hour towards Canada, but you're supposed to be going to Mexico, it's not going to help you to slow down to 20. So we're looking at this idea of the 100% goal, which brings us to this idea of the triple top line, because what we recognize is that we've been in some place, this social market economy that everybody's been talking about for the last couple hundred years, and this idea of capitalism and socialism, and we're somewhere in there. But you realize that any ism is a dangerous thing. It's too extreme. A, a capitalism, Nazism, sexism, racism, socialism, so on. It's too extreme. A pure capitalist is not good for the environment. They cut down the trees and forget the fish. A pure socialist is not good for the environment. Alexei Yablokov, Russia's uh, eminent scientist, preeminent scientist, tells us that the former USSR is now 16% uninhabitable. They call it ecocide. This would be the equivalent of having to put a fence around Texas, which I think we're working on. Um, I mean, I, I'm sorry. Actually, it is the most toxic state. But, but anyway, we've, so we're somewhere between socialism and capitalism and, and the social market economy. And what's been missing is what we consider the third ism, which is, we call ecologism, which would be just as dangerous as any other ism. Because you see, an ecologistic person is too extreme, too. I've been astonished at how many environmentalists will stand up and say, it's a population problem. And that child being born in India, that's a population problem. The second that a child is born and is not loved and is considered a population problem, human rights ceases to exist. So the idea of just simply saying that the environment at all costs, whether economic or social, is just as terrifying as any other ism. And so perhaps the strategy has to be something that can balance these things by design, 
using this triple top line strategy, which I will now go into in, in a, as a tool that helps us with our clients. I think this is why we, why we got the award at the White House, does this work? And what you look at is that this is ecology, economy, and equity. This is the famous triad of sustainable development. So if we look here in this fractal tool, which is a Sierpinski gasket for the mathematicians, it's a self-replicating fractal and no scale. If we, go to the, if we want to be 100% fabulous all the way, well, then we'd have to be 100% fabulous in all of our elements. So what would it mean to be 100% in the economy, the corner of the economy corner? What's the question? If you're a business, can I make and sell at a profit? Your commerce. So what we tell our commercial clients is if the answer to that question is no, don't do it. Because by definition, you have to be profitable, otherwise you don't exist. And they all go, <laughs> they understand us. Fair enough. All right, well, there. here's the next question. I'll be spending my day with Nike tomorrow with their management as we get ready to roll to the next level. Well, what's the question here? Economy equity. Are people earning a living wage? Is that important? Ask Nike. Um, <laughs> equity economy. Equity first, what's the question? Are women being paid the same as men for the same work? Does it matter? The average woman, according to a study I just saw, gets the average 74% of the average male for the same work. Is that fair? Equity, equity, nothing to do with ecology or economy. What is this? Well, this is where we would find racism, sexism, things like that. Are people treating each other with respect? Are we celebrating the fact that we're all different? Equity, ecology, well, that's interesting. Is it fair that our factories contain carcinogens? Is it fair that Barbie's head contains phthalates, endocrine disruptors for our young girls? Is that fair? Is that good design? Ecology, equity. Is it fair that your factory causes global warming or pollutes a river? Ecology, ecology, are you following nature's laws? You know, I'm an architect. I have to follow the law of gravity. Not just a good idea. <laughs> it's the law. What other laws might nature have for me to follow? Ecology, economy, can I be effective with resources? We're designing a building in Overland, Ohio, partnering with BP to make the building make more energy than it needs to operate. Can you imagine a building like a tree? Can you imagine a building being fecund? How sophisticated is human design? How many humans can walk out into a meadow and with their left hand scrape away a little sod and with their right hand put something they've designed into the ground that starts to make oxygen, sequester carbon, fix nitrogen, distill water, provide habitat for hundreds of species, build soil, accrue solar energy as fuel, make complex sugars and food, change colors with the seasons, create microclimates, and self-replicate. And here we find economy ecology. This is eco-efficiency. This is natural capitalism, things like that, where we say, oh, it's capitalism, it's natural. Nature provides us with services. Are we being efficient? And so basically the problem we have right now is that in the triple bottom line, everybody starts out in the economy corner going, well, am I profitable or not? And as they report out on their equity relationships, they talk about how they've been better for society by making some jobs or daycare centers. But as they report out into the environment, they basically stop right here and say, well, we've been more efficient, we've been less bad along here. They haven't talked about generating fecundity or becoming solar-powered companies as soon as it's cost-effective. And how do we generate that cost-effectiveness? Some projects. Herman Miller. The factory that won Business Week's Design Award, the Design for Business Award, $49 square foot building, uh, generated enough revenue with the same number of employees to pay for the building every three months. We gave the workers daylight and fresh air and views of the outdoors and the Beach Boys, and performance went up. Rocket science. For the gap here in San Bruno, uh, here's the site, a competition against the two biggest firms in America. We were an 18-person firm in New York when Don Fisher, the chairman, 
invited us to compete. We looked at the site and said, ooh, stormwater. We said, wouldn't it be great if we could design, this is our competition entry, wouldn't it be great if we could design a building and if a bird looked down, they'd say, oh, it's our people, they're back. So we said, what if the roof was an undulating meadow of the ancient grasses of San Bruno? And what if the workers felt that they worked outdoors, under clouds, and we won, and we built it? And we went to the federal government to get permission to go on federal lands to collect the seeds of the native grasses of this place. Because you can't go to the nursery and say, I'd like the ancient grasses of this place. <laughs> it's now a very important native grass seed nursery. This is a roof. How many buildings you know made oxygen leak? The windows open, which we thought was a good idea. <laughs> the Wall Street Journal thought it was news. <laughs> we told the reporter that we've reached a low point in Western civilization <laughs> when a window that opens is news. The building is full of daylight and fresh air. We got a call from PG&E. They were worried about our building because our energy use was so low. They were looking to give an award for energy, low energy use, and they came across our building on a per square foot, per square foot basis. It was just beating out everything. And they said, you know, your closest competitor is a building that's been designed to be the most efficient building we can find, and they've reduced the amount of fresh air to 15 cubic feet per minute per person to reduce the energy use, and they've reduced the daylight to the minimum for heating and cooling, and so we're worried your people don't have enough fresh air. And we said, well, you don't understand. We've used raised floors. We, this is the first time anybody's used raised computer floors through the whole building because in this climate, we could take the nighttime air and cool the slabs of the building all night long like a hacienda, like the ancients. And we get the cooling for free. Everybody in this building gets 100% fresh air delivered to their breathing zone under their own control. And everybody has five views of the outdoors and full daylight to work in. As we told their engineers from PG&E, we would rather design a life support system for people who are working than a work support system for people who don't have a life. <laughs> we won the competition for Nike's European headquarters, uh, the largest geothermal system in Europe. We worked with the town planners to do the master plan. Instead of coming to them with a, with a plan, we actually worked with them. So they presented it to the city council. Nike moved in less than two years. The developers expected the permission and approvals process to take two years. We put the running track over the front door. It's Nike. Just do it. <laughs> At Oberlin College for David Orr, a professor there, a building that experiments with the idea of a building that could be like a tree and purify its own water with a living machine. The auditorium for the uh, lobby is a place you can watch your sewage being treated by microbes and other species. In 1993, we were hired by a design techs as part of Steelcase to design new fabrics. We went to a mill in Switzerland where the trimmings of the bolts of cloth had been declared hazardous waste by the Swiss government. They couldn't bury or burn it in Switzerland. They had to ship it to Spain. And you realize that if your trimmings are declared hazardous material, but you can sell what's in the middle, you don't need to be rocket scientists to figure out that you're selling hazardous waste. So we went to the chemical industry and said, we're starting to analyze products based on science and gas chromatography, for example. This is a computer monitor. Neurotoxins, carcinogens, and so on and so forth. And we went to the chemical industry and said, we would like to see all products in the future as pediatric pharmaceuticals. We would like our children to touch them and suck on them and get health, not sickness. What would it mean to create a pharmaceutical screen for all product development so that our filters of the future are no longer on the ends of pipes, they're in our heads. They're intelligence filters. How about this? No more cancer. No more birth defects. No more endocrine disruption. No more mutagens. No more disruption of our immune systems, acute toxicities. No more biodegradation, no more persistence. Remember Scotchgard? A $305 million business disappeared overnight when 3M, which did the right thing, recognized it was a persistent material that doesn't break down in the environment and nobody knows what it's going to do. We looked at various pathways for halogenated hydrocarbons and so on. We want to know exact, exactly what it's made out of. Don't tell us it's proprietary and legal. If we don't know what it is, we're not using it. 
We want to know about genetic engineering. We want to know about climate relevance and so on. Anyway, 60 chemical companies turned us down. So this chairman of Sibagaygi let us in. The joke in Basel in Switzerland is that they had finally let the hen into the fox house. We looked at 8,000 chemicals in the textile industry, and with these intellectual filters, eliminated 7,962. We were left with 38 chemicals. We did the entire fabric line with 38 chemicals. It reduced the cost by 20%. There's nothing to regulate, and the water coming out of the mill is now as clean as the water going in, which is Swiss drinking water. In fact, it filters us further. And what you realize is that if a textile mill is a water purifier, then you can take the water coming out and turn it around because the Swiss inspectors who came to inspect the effluents after our process thought their equipment had broken. And so they went and tested the influent, and the equipment was fine. The, water, the fabrics were further filtering the water. When the effluent of a textile mill is cleaner than the influent, you can turn the pipe around. You'd rather use your effluent than influence, it's more defined. And guess what happens? There's nothing to regulate. The mulch, the trimmings are now made into mulch for the local garden club. Waste equals food, in this case, strawberries. We've been able to track the environmental reporting of every molecule through the company and show our progress. We're now bringing this to polyester industry. We've developed a new polyester without antimony, a carcinogenic heavy metal the water before we arrived, the water after coming out of the factory. The new carpets with BSF, we're developing uh, advances on nylon 6, so it's infinitely recyclable back to caprolactam. This raw material, as I mentioned, Shaw is developing the cradle-to-cradle carpet and has that prepared for the marketplace as we speak. With Nike, we're developing materials protocols. The soles of the shoes will be biological nutrition, so as you wear out the soles, instead of providing neurotoxins, uh, we're providing nutrition. The uppers would be infinitely recyclable, new polyesters. The ad could be wear your old shoes in, wear your new shoes out. There is no finish line. Thank you. <laughs> With Unilever, new shower gels and, and cosmetics that make the fish happy that you want to be so clean instead of terrified. And with Ford Motor Company, whole protocols on the making of vehicles and mobility services that, that start to look at how a car could become cradle to cradle. Cars could become cars. They're powered by solar-derived hydrogen. The Model T for the next century. And to finish, we're working with Mayor Richard Daly, who will announce any day now uh, something he commissioned us to write for him, the Chicago Principles. Chicago has decided to declare itself to have the ambition to be the greenest city in the world. They will announce it soon. We did the green roof on City Hall. And we're looking at the notion of how do we power our cities and what are cities about as we look at our human future. We recognize that most of our people will be in cities. And we see cities as the home of technical nutrition. And we see the countryside as the home of biological nutrition. And so we see the biological nutrition coming from the hinterland to feed the cities. And then we see those biological nutrients being returned to the soil of the hinterland to restore it into biological fecundity. We see the cities as the home of technical nutrition where we make our windmills our batteries, the various things that we need for our utility and enjoyment. We send these products into the countryside, for example, where they get deployed here, windmills that are providing a new cash crop to the farmers uh, of South Dakota. And then these, as they finish their 30-year their life, return to the city for refurbishing as technical nutrition and back into two close cyclical flows, biological and technical. The city is a very critical part of the strategy. We're looking at what we call the 13th mile, that point over the horizon where we could put our systems in ways that are beneficial to all and that are quite beautiful. And we're starting to reimagine human activity as a, as a fundamental fecund uh, metabolism. And here, an astonishing quote by Claude Levi-Strauss that looks at the idea that cities have often been likened to symphonies and poems, and the comparison seems natural. They are objects of the same kind. The city is the place where nature and artifice meet. It is a congestion of animals whose biological history is enclosed in the boundary, but the conscious act helps to shape its character. And by its form, as the manner of its birth, the city has elements at once of biological procreation, organic evolution, and aesthetic creation. It is both a natural object and a thing to be cultivated. Individual and group, something lived and something dreamed, 
It is the dehuman invention par excellence. And as we apply this basic sense of the exquisiteness of the potential for human creativity, what we understand is that our sacred responsibility as a species is to understand that ability to be intentional and to express hope that defines who we are as a species. And that we could celebrate that instead of bemoan it if we started to imagine what we could do to allow our children's 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 children to celebrate life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness free from the intergenerational remote tyranny that might be us in bad design. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a presentation from the Center for Social Innovation at Stanford. For additional practical and provocative ideas, check out the Center's award-winning publication, the Stanford Social Innovation Review, at www.ssireview.org. Registered members of the Conversations Network receive a wide variety of benefits. For free membership or to help support our efforts through your donations, visit conversationsnetwork.org. Our audio content is delivered by Limelight Networks, taking the cost and complexity out of Internet distribution on the web at limelightnetworks.com. The post-production audio engineer for this program was Rob Lepper. Our website editor was Bernadette Clavier. The series producer is Bernadette Clavier. My name is Eric Nee, and I hope you'll be joining us next time for another presentation from the Center for Social Innovation. Thanks for listening. The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.